Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to episode 185 of Leading Simple. My name is Rusty George, trying to make all the craziness of life just a bit more simple. And today, for anybody who leads any organization and you're in big shoes, you are filling the shoes of somebody who's a legend wherever you are. And that might even be a parent, that might be a guardian, that might be a nonprofit, that might be a church. We're going to get to hear from Pastor Eric Geiger as he took over for a, a pastoral legend, Kenton B. Shore. And he took over a massive church called Mariner's Church and led them right into and out of COVID. And you're going to get to hear great stuff from him. If for those of you that are a part of the church and have been for many years, you may remember Eric's name from a book that was written about uh, 20 years ago. It's a fascinating book, um, simply called Simple Church. And uh, it's just a great read, especially for all of us who like to make things simple. And Eric's going to give us some great advice about how to follow a legend and make good decisions in crazy times. Today, as always, we've been sponsored by Compassion International, a great organization. And we are on a mission to sponsor a thousand kids and you guys are stepping up. So thank you for that. And we'd love to have those of you who have not sponsored a child yet to take a moment and go over to Compassion's website, compassion.com slash rusty. You can sign up to sponsor a child right there. We'd love to have you participate in that. Change a child's life. Do this with your family. Well, let's get right to my conversation with Pastor Eric Geiger and hear what he has to say about how to make church simple and follow a legend. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, For our listeners who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you were a New Orleans Saints fan. Mm, I'm a Saints fan because I grew up in the New Orleans area and stayed there all the way through high school graduation, then went went off to college, met my wife Kay, sophomore year of college. We got married in college. We hit 25 years ago. Where'd you go to college? Uh, Louisiana Tech. It's in North Louisiana. So about Tech, yeah. Okay. Five hours up the up the road from New Orleans. And then Kay and I got married in college. We we celebrate 25 years next month uh, in November. Great. And we have two daughters, 13 and 11, and Eden is 13, Evie's 11. I am coaching Evie's basketball um, team, which is like a part-time job right now. And then I am today going to Eden's game. So they're playing basketball, which is a dream come true for me. So we're enjoying we're enjoying this fall. And you and I are living similar lives. I'm just a couple of years ahead of you. We have two daughters uh, at this time, 19 and 17. And uh, nice. I played basketball a little bit. It's uh, a bit painful to watch, but uh, sure is fun to participate with, right? Yeah, we had uh, four points in the first half yesterday. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, so you went to Louisiana Tech. Uh, I take it you didn't go there to become a pastor. What did you go there to do? I initially was going to be an attorney. So that I was I was majoring in uh, accounting and business and was going to go to go to law school after, but then God, God made it clear um, sophomore year of college that I was going to be in some type of ministry. And I was, I was doing youth ministry at the time. So where, where did you, uh, get into ministry? What was your first, uh, job in that area? Yeah. So freshman year of college, I'm, I'm 18 and I give my, my testimony at this collegiate ministry on, on the, the college campus of Louisiana tech. And there was a pastor there and he hears me and he asked me to come be his youth pastor. And he has $25 a week. He's going to pay me mm. and he's going to have the elderly ladies in the church, wash my clothes for me for free. 
which was super compelling. So I, I'm like, man, I'm doing that. I don't even have to wash clothes. This is ministry is going to be so good for me. Yep. So I, I started doing youth ministry freshman year of college. Just thought initially, Rusty, that that was going to be, you know, how I served the Lord when I was in college, but didn't didn't necessarily think that was going to be long term. But that, you know, over the next several years, that became became more and more apparent that that's that's what he built me to do. So I think you uh, you first came onto my radar when you wrote a book with Tom Rayner called Simple Church, uh, which was it was one of those uh, those books that kind of shook up the church world. It was it was liberating for a lot of young guys like me at the time because they were like, wow, that's what I've been thinking. That's what we right. should do. And it was very disheartening for guys that have been in ministry a long time that had 7,000 ministry programs. Right. Tell me, uh, you know, where did that come from? And give us a little bit of the concept and then we'll get into what's true today still or, or not. It, it, you know, we, we were told by the publishers never to say this in the book because nobody would read it. But it was initially my doctoral dissertation. So I had done research uh, on vibrant churches and comparing them to those that had a simple process for discipleship. And that initially came from my student ministry days when I would see, um, you know, parachurch ministries, student venture at the time, which was like Campus Crusades for Christ, teenage version, young life, different student ministries. They were super strategic compared to youth groups that I saw that were just really event focused. Like we got, you know, here's the calendar. We have a lock in. We've got a Friday night, fifth quarter pizza bash. You know, it basically was have the the most filled out calendar you can have to send to the parents and the teenagers was was like effective youth groups when I first got in the game, which was so different than the parachurch ministries that were um really had a strategy, you know, like Young Life, I think it was, I used to speak at some of their camps, was like, you know, get a kid to camp and then get them to club and then get them to uh, core and then get them to campaigners. I mean, they had a, they had a, a sequence of, so I, I, <clears throat> I just, I started doing research on what a discipleship process looks like. And with a team of people built a survey that we then distributed to two strata, different churches, like one group that was growing and, you know, making an impact in their communities and another that wasn't. And just was curious if, if that they would fill out that survey different or in the same way. And, and then brought the data to a, I didn't like do statistic work. I paid somebody to do it for me, brought, brought the data to a statistician at Florida International University. So I don't even think she was a believer, but she called me after doing all, after I paid her to, you know, spend a couple of weeks on the data. And she said, I don't know what this is. And I don't, I'm not a church person, but whatever you, you found is really significant. You could write a journal article. And so that basically the, the churches that were vibrant had a really they had they were super clear on their discipleship process. They they said no to things that fell outside of their process. They aligned every ministry around their process, and they were they were really focused on this is how we make disciples around here, which was very different than we just throw a lot of programs on the calendar right and and do what was handed to us from the people before us. So that's how simple that's the backstory to Simple Church. Um, obviously, like I said, we didn't we didn't share that it was a, a nerdy research project in the first chapter, but it really was initially. Well, that's uh, that's that's probably good marketing advice, right? Uh, I don't know <laughs> if I would have picked it up had it said uh, right. my doctor my doctoral thesis. So, 
Um, okay, so I was so fascinated by this because I happened to be working at a church in Kentucky that had so many different ministries. There was literally one called Paws, which was pets or working servants. Oh, uh, and they would take pets around the nursing homes. Neat idea. But here again, a person could get really busy with church stuff and never become a disciple of Jesus. So, totally. you know, what did you find that that churches and specifically then when you go to work for Lifeway, you're dealing with a lot of churches and providing a lot of materials for people, a lot of Bible study stuff. Yep. How did you see that play out over the next you know, decade of how people would simplify their strategy? What worked? What didn't work? And is it still working? Yeah, I mean, the book came out. Oh, six, oh, six, oh, five, oh, six. And then there's some things that happened after the book came out that I think we, we actually saw expressions of focus and, and a simple process really work its way out. So oh, eight happened, you know, a couple of years later, which was the a major recession that impacted churches and their giving big time. So that I think was was helpful because churches were able to say, okay, now that we have less resources, let's be sure we fund that which we believe is most important in terms of making disciples. Mm-hmm. Then multiple campuses, I know you guys are in multiple campuses, Rusty, they, uh, they happened, you know, at, you know, 08, 10, 12, people were starting to launch more and more congregations. And you really can only reproduce what's a, a recipe in my wife's kitchen is much more easy to reproduce if it's simple than if it's you know, seven pages long. And so you can reproduce what, what is clear. You have to, you need clarity to reproduce. So I think multiple campuses Hmm. are, is somewhat related to simplicity. Um, I was recently with, uh, the, the David Green from Hobby Lobby. I spent some time with him with some leaders in our church. We, he gave us a day and it was great. And I think there are 987 stores, just shy of a thousand. And he has said that they've become more simple in terms of um, really clear, like here's the merchandise in each store, the footprint of each store. They become more more centralized slash simple as they've grown than they were before. So Hmm. when you when you multiply, it actually forces you to if you're going to have the same church, you know, have the same DNA, you're going to need to know what that DNA is. so anyway, that's just, just some broad, broad observations, but uh, that that I think we've seen happen in the church world post the book coming out that mm-hmm. that have um, I'm not saying the book was like revolutionary for those movements. I'm just saying that um, the those movements reinforce some of the things that we had already seen when we wrote the book. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting about Hobby Lobby because you walk through Hobby Lobby and you think, boy, there is no end to the madness in this place. Right. <laughs> There's a bunch of SKUs, like 70,000 or something, you know, products, but the same ones in every 987 of them. That is incredible. Oh, wow. Okay, so you spent time at Lifeway. And for our listeners, um, you know, Lifeway is this massive uh, Christian bookstore conglomerate of all this great, you know, information that they put out. What was your role with Lifeway? How many years were you there? I was there seven and my role, my role changed, um, multiple times there. So I first went to oversee what was called the church resources division, which was, Mm -hmm. which was anything that, that Lifeway would create and, and then sell directly to a church. So a Bible study, an event, um, kids, students, music, um, Sunday school curriculum, those kinds of things. 
had a blast uh, with that team. And then I was asked year three to combine another division, which was the B&H division. Basically, if you see a trade book that has B&H on it, a Bible like the CSB Bible, we published that uh, in academic resources. So, so then everything Lifeway created at all, whether for direct to church or for the broader trade market, which was B&H, um, I then led that team. And that was, that was so fun combining those two teams. Amazing, just great years. Love that team so much. And then the last year I was there, um, they said, Hey, will you try to see if we can, you know, the stores just brick and mortar as a whole had been challenged, challenged, not just, I mean, Lifeway was really one of the last ones who, who stayed, you know, you had Berean family Christian bookstore. They had, um, had shuttered up before. And so, could we try to keep this model? Should we keep this model going of the brick and mortar? And, and so we, the, our, the team I led, we, we were a part of trying to turn that around that, you know, for, and, and we were not able to do so. Um, I mean, it, it was closed after I left, but I did not do anything to, uh, unfortunately, um, none of, I mean, our ideas, I think we had some great ideas, but we were unable to turn, turn the tide of what was happening yeah. in those, in the stores. But, you know, maybe, people who are still at Lifeway have told me if it, if we had survived it, then we would, wouldn't have survived COVID. So, mm. you know, who knows, you know, in God's time and in God's providence, but great people, you know, great people that were on that team. And I'm, and I enjoyed working with them a lot. So I'm curious about, you know, now you're back in the church world and we'll get to that in just a second, but you were on the other side of this. You were on the, not only just the marketing side, but you're producing products that you know Christians are interested in and are buying. Yeah. Were there any trends there that you found were interesting or surprising that might even kind of impact what programs you decide to put your, your chips on for ministry on this side of the products? I, there's so many, I mean, there's so many trends that, that we saw, some of them were encouraging. Some of them were, were discouraging. I mean, I feel like I had a, 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 you know, a front row seat to what God was doing in a lot of churches. I think uh, a discouraging trend that has caused me to, to want to give more direction in this than maybe I would have thought before, you know, if I had been past when I was pastoring before Lifeway is how, um, how unengaged or uninformed a lot of senior leaders are in churches about what is being used in their churches to disciple their people. Mm. Um, you know, at one point, like in local churches, there had been a, um, Hey, let's have a scope and sequence of, of, of how we teach people over time. And then at some point, a lot of church leaders just like, it just became a free for all, like groups can choose and study whatever they want, which is, um, well, you, I mean, you wouldn't do that with your pulpit. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just be like, Hey, let's, let's have, um, anything taught here. Right. If we really believe that what truth is, is, uh, dissected in a group of people is what's most sticky and transformational. Then I was really surprised, Rusty, how, how few pastors had any idea what was being taught in their kids ministry, their groups ministry, um, but yet they 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 viewed themselves as dogmatic about what would happen from the stage. <laughs> right. But, but we've said that what happens in those other environments is is what's you know most. So that was one trend that I just I feel like even in my seven years there it became more and more um, 
disconnected. I remember writing one day because a mentor had told me that, you know, what happened in a lot of churches in the 90s was the senior pastor um, divorced the discipleship pastor and ran off with the worship pastor. Um, (laughs) Kind of the thinking was that at one point, senior pastors cared about the discipleship of the whole church, but but got so attached to just the weekend experience that. Mm -hmm. uh, So that was one trend. I think that was really um, really alarming. But then there was other things that we saw from research that was super encouraging and I think has impacted my ministry. Um, as far as what makes the biggest impact in somebody's spiritual journey, you know, I was a part of several research projects where it is the scripture, the word, the word transforms, um, being sure people read the, read the scripture, challenge people to read the scripture is probably the, the most fruitful thing that I can do. Mm. Um, groups being built around the scripture, uh, the importance of, of people being in a group, you know, Stetzer and I wrote a book on that, 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 that came out of a research project we did at Lifeway. Um, I, I, I really do am so thankful for those seven years because I, I, I saw, I know I'm kind of known more for the simple church research, but I saw a lot of research related to discipleship that has, has definitely impacted me. Hmm. So I'm, I'd say, you know, I came back into the church saying, you know, the word is going to be the most central thing. Um, because I, I've seen, I've seen the data and because the, the word and because the word says that of itself, right? Um, groups are going to be important. I'm going to give overall direction to the discipleship diet of our church, not only the, the stage time, you know, mm-hmm. but those are things that I think developed during my time at Lifeway. Was it tough working at Lifeway and you have, you know, you have, you have a deadline obviously, but you have a longer runway to be able to do all that research and compile all that data and figure out what works versus now you're back in the local church and you've got a, a seven day deadline. Sunday's always coming. What was that a, a tough transition for you or do you just kind of naturally roll with the changes? Um, I, I appreciate the, the, the question. I think for me, it's the flip. I enjoy the quicker pivots of local church. Interesting. Okay. As opposed to the, the long publishing deadline, like, you know, when at Lifeway, you know, you're 18 months out at all times because it just takes a long time, product development, mm-hmm. lead generation, like all those words, right? You know, the market development, all that, that takes so much time. And there's times where we got things right and you enjoyed the fruit, but then there's times when you didn't get it right and you're like, oh gosh, man, we can't just pivot. Shoot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I feel here, um, there's, you know, it, I, there's quicker pivots, mm-hmm. quicker pivots, you know? Yeah. I understand that. That's good. Okay. Well, tell our listeners how you got to Mariners. I mean, Mariners has a tremendous history, legacy, incredible, you know, senior pastor in Kenton B. Shore, and is just doing incredible stuff down in, you know, uh, Orange County area, just amazing facility for one. But, you know, how did you end up there? And uh, tell us about what transition to Mariners was like. Hey, let me pop in here for just a second and remind you, make sure you sponsor a child. Go there right now, compassion.com slash rusty. Sponsor a child today for the price of about two lattes. You can change a child's life. Love for you to be a part of that. 
and go to Compassion.com, Compassion International, and sign up, Compassion.com slash Rusty and sponsor a child. Okay, back to our conversation. Yep, I, I was out here speaking at a conference in eight, 18, uh, February of 2018. I had not uh, considered, I had not sent a resume. You know, I, I was really happy in my role. I did think as, as alongside Kay, my wife, that we would be back pastoring. You know, I'd be back in the local church again. And I had written on a, like a little note on my, my phone, like the kind of church I would want to go to. And, you know, Mariners definitely would have fit that. Right. But I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't looking, I was out speaking. And the whole time I was here, I had brought my oldest daughter with me. I, I was like, man, I don't know why I just, I really want to, I can see living here. And it wasn't because it was a beautiful day. It was February and it was like an actually, (laughs) actually warmer in Nashville that day than it was in Orange County. Um, I hadn't felt that way about a city since Miami. So I served in Miami for eight years and I loved Miami, um, loved the people, you know, really felt a burden for the city. And for some reason I had a burden you know, I, and I was texting my wife back home and she's like, ah, we'll talk about when you get home. You know, what does that mean? I don't, you know, well, I get home and I'm telling her about it and I'm like, this is, I'm telling you, I, I can't describe what I felt like the whole time we were there. We were there three days and then she goes to bed. I'm still on West coast time, so I'm not tired yet. And I get a text message from William Vanderblumen, who's the, the leader of the search firm that Mariner's church was working with. And Vanderblumen just sends me a link to, um, the the posting about mariners and i'm i'm like whoa wait this is right where i was Mm -hmm. and i not i wasn't at mariner speaking but i was in so in orange county speaking and i go into our bedroom and i'm like baby look that you're not gonna you were not gonna believe this this was this was this was exactly the place i was just telling you about so that was that night was really interesting i spent several hours on mariner's website um looking at sermons and, you know, trying to get a, a feel of the church. The next day I told, tell Vanderblum and I, I can't talk about it because I have um, committed to Tom Rayner to be there with him several more years. And Tom, you know, was, I mean, Tom has been, I still feel so indebted to him for, for so many ways, but Tom calls me into his office and says, um, Hey, and I, and I found out later that, that Vanderblum had asked him, Hey, can I, can I talk to Eric about this? because they were friends too. Mm-hmm. And um, Tom says, I know you've committed to be here, but only this church, but I, I don't want to ever hold you from anything. If you want to talk to Mariners, you can talk to Mariners. I mean, obviously he, you know, he wasn't like kiss the ring on the Godfather. I'm giving you permission, but it was like with a clear conscience, Eric, you don't have to feel like you're being disloyal to me if you talk to Mariners. So I, uh, that was February that started the process, which lasted for six months. And it was a, it was a touch and go, like some moments I, I'm so excited to go to grieving, leaving to, you know, in the final month, really just torturous time. When I say torturous, like painful of leaving, but but excited about going and just feeling torn and really wanting God to speak. And and in the end, he he made it clear to to come here. He actually made it clear to my my little girls and my wife even before me. So it, but it was, I, I'm grateful for it, for that wrestling time, but man, I hope that I don't, I would love to not have that again. I can stay here, you know? Yeah. 
Okay, so you walk into an incredible situation, but you have to follow a legend. Yes. I mean, Kenton B. Shore is an incredible pastor, incredible communicator, incredible leader. He is. And he is a force of nature when it comes to his personality. He, he, he owns every room he walks into. Any he room does. He walks into, it's his room. He is that guy, and exactly. he quickly becomes the the sharpest guy in the room, yep. uh, the most uh, direct and the wisest, and sometimes can make you very, very nervous. Totally. Um, I got a feeling just from talking to you, you're a little bit of a different personality. So walk us through what it's like to yep. follow a legend, and what were some things you decided in your mind, I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to do this. Yeah. Yeah, we're different. Um, it's, it's funny. We have very similar ministry philosophy. Uh, I mean, so close there. Theologically, he uh, was um, mentored by John Stott and John Stott's like, you know, my favorite book on the the atonement is Cross of Christ. Favorite book on preaching is Between Two Worlds. Favorite book on mission is Christian Mission in the 21st Century. His ecclesiology. I mean, all like it was and it would, which meant a lot to me because I didn't want to feel like I was going to move this church in a different direction theologically um, or have to sacrifice who I was to not, right? That it would be a, it would be a, a, a fit. Uh, even like on the personality profiles, we, 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 um, we score really close, but it does express itself differently. So I'm not, um, I don't own the room that I walk into. I'm, I'm more, my wife does. <laughs> my <laughs> wife owns the room. I'm more, uh, I'm more chill, you know, hanging out. I'm, I'm not an introvert, but I'm not, um, I don't think anyone's ever said Eric owns the room, you know? Um, so what I wanted to do with Kenton, which is still the, the case, we have lunch together next week. Um, man, 35 years. I won't be here 35 years because I won't be, you know, 80 years old when I'm the fast, uh, faster anymore. Yeah. Um, so just to honor and be so filled with gratitude for, for his time, which I have, I have done. And he has been extremely helpful and honoring to me. We, we basically, what, and we've talked about it, like, why has it worked so well? Um, and it's really worked well. I mean, we're, we're over three years in, we have a great relationship. Kay, my wife and his wife have a great relationship. We both have said, we do love each other. I love the guy. He loves me. And I know he loves me. I know he loves me, but we love the church the most. And hmm. we, we have just had the, the, the mindset of we, we, how we treat one another decisions we make and how we communicate. We, we are going to love the church by, by our relationship. The, the relationship we have is going to, is going to honor the church. Mm. You know, a lot of guys come into a situation where they have to follow a legend and sometimes it's, it's rough. Okay. Because the guy didn't leave. The- I hear a lot of it's rough from a lot of people. Right. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, cleaning up the messes or there's a huge amount of debt or other things like that. You didn't walk into any of that. So what did you feel was the most pressing thing to do as soon as you got there? Because there was no, right from my out, outstanding perspective from the outside, there was no huge problem to solve. Did you have to create one or did you have to yeah. create some momentum? No, you're right. Uh, and in some ways, it's easier to be a leader when there is a problem to solve because mm-hmm. you, you're able to, to rally a team around that. And like when I went to Lifeway, 
Tom Rainer, who hired me, declared, hey, here's a couple of problems I've asked Eric to solve, which gave me all kinds of cover to make lots of really challenging but important decisions. Um, I didn't have that cover here, which was if you look, there's a book uh, called by Michael Watkins called Your First 90 Days that says mm -hmm. you need to decide if are you in a startup, um, a realignment, a sustained success or a turnaround. And if you're in a turnaround or a startup, you have to be like a, a hunter and kill today. So you eat today. But if you're in a realignment or a sustained success, you're, you're a farmer. You need to plant and and harvest like six months from now, right? Not, you're still going to eat, but you don't, you don't kill today. So I, I had read that before and it was a helpful framework. I did not come in trying to create a problem. Uh, I came in like, this is not a turnaround or a startup. This is a sustained success. And I, I, I told the staff, Hey, I'm going to run the playbook that was, that you've been running. I'm joining this team. I'm running this playbook. Uh, we just now, and I've just I've, I've just crossed the three-year mark. We just now have implemented new values. So other places I've been, we we I did that early. Mm. We we waited three years, and all of them are built on um, former values, and they're just rearticulation and and you know some some adding of some things. But and I and I Kenton saw all those beforehand, and and this is Kenton. Kenton says you must change the values, even just for the sake of changing them. You have to. It has to. At, you can't only run this playbook forever, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, Eric, I appreciate how honoring you've been, but you are the leader. You you are going to have to call some plays, you know, and not just run the former plays. Right. So I, but I have waited longer um, than I have in any other context, any other place I've been, I'm, I pulled triggers more quickly than I did here. And the pandemic likely, um, escalated some pulling of triggers. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, I, I think I was more, more patient here, but not only cause I was exercising patience, but because I was really, uh, loved the church I came to. I didn't come with a mindset of I'm fixing these people, but I'm loving these people. That's great. Well, it's, um, I mean, it's a fascinating place If people have not been to Mariners campus. It is, uh, <laughs> it is Disney World for churches. Uh, it's an unbelievable campus. And I, I got to tell you this about your staff. I've had a chance to be on campus several times, and the staff's incredible. Um, and I've had a chance to interact with some of the pastors there. They're always incredibly gracious. Um, I've been invited into staff meetings. I've been given materials, resources, ideas. Uh, it, it's just a, a really welcoming place, which speaks highly to the DNA and the fact that they've asked you to come in and carry it further speaks very highly of you. Um, and now I know that you guys had some multi-site going on, which had primary, uh, live teaching, I believe. What, what is the status of multi-site now at Mariners? Did you spin those off into other campuses and other churches? Uh, and, and with that in mind, what do you think the future of multi-site is? Yeah. So as I came in, there were several Mariners that were being spun off and then, and, th and that happened. And then we have launched new, new congregations. Uh, and we, we, um, one that was going to be spun off, we, uh, we decided to, to not. And so we, and then over the, so we had two going into the pandemic, uh, Mariners, Irvine and Mariners, Huntington Beach. And then now we have six. So we just launched four new ones that came out of the pandemic. And it's a combination of 
live teaching and video teaching. Uh, and that really fits the model of our church, which has been a team teaching approach. So mm-hmm. we use video uh, in part to ensure that there's team teaching. So if you're at another congregation, you might be the lead pastor who teaches there some, but you're also getting video, which ensures that the, the same team of teachers, right? Right. Um, I think multiple campuses is going to continue to, um, I think even in individual churches, there will be, um, shifting and, you know, evolution. Some will spin off, some will, um, some, then some churches will then relaunch new ones. And I, I, I think church multiplication is the, is the overall conviction, whether planting or multiple campuses, um, churches need to multiply. Um, and multiple campuses is a great, or multiple congregations is a great way to do it, but it's not the only way to do it. Um, but it's a great way to do it. And church, you know, we want to see churches multiply. We want to see new people get together in Christian community and multiplication is, has to be a conviction. You know, because you've been not only in the church world for a long time, but also in the publishing world, you've seen that this, uh, the idea of house churches, it's kind of like a pendulum swing, you know, it comes around every few years and people get very excited about it. Um, and it felt like, uh, during COVID, um, you know, the house church movement is going to really take off and this will be the only way we do churches in the future. And here you've got this 3000 seat auditorium, you know, and incredible bells and whistles. Um, are you still seeing the value of the large gathering and you're not quite ready to say that house churches are the only thing moving ahead? I'm for sure not saying that house churches are the only thing. I think it it would be awesome if out of COVID there's some new expressions of church. Yeah. And so we have, I think, 60 homes still that we resource that are having um, gatherings in their home every weekend. And and I'm, I love that. I love that. Uh, and I hear stories of people who, like, man, for them to be able to meet with their neighbors and have church and have communion together, um, I'm... I, last thing I want to do is tell them that that is a um, in ineffective or you know mm-hmm. non. I mean that's a great way to gather, right? I love that the church is gathering that way. Right. At the same time, I love that you know we'll have thousands of people in a worship center, you know, hands lifted, belting out songs to Jesus, right? So I right. I love that that's happening too. So I, I don't think. Um, I think the people saying that, you know, large gatherings are going to go away. Um, we've lived through as a culture, we lived through 1918, 1919 and 1920. Mm-hmm. We lived through, um, you know, other plagues in human history. There's something in us that does want to be a part of something bigger than us. Um, I, I think gatherings are going to continue to be a, a way that the church feeds people spiritually and yeah. encourages people. But I'm great that new expressions are are emerging from 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 COVID too. Yeah, me too. I, I think I want to say church is essential. You know, that was a big thing early on in the pandemic. <laughs> but you're form of church is not essential. Church itself is essential, but there's multiple forms of church. Um, and that, that form, there's some consistent things that have to be there. Yeah. You know, I think Luther and Calvin pretty much had the same definition. The, the sacraments are observed. The, the word is rightly divided, you know, so it's, you know, a gathering of people around the word where people are having communion together and new believers are being baptized. Mm. I'm, 
I'm all about that being in a home, um, a community center, a large facility. Um, I'm all about all for that happening. That's awesome. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Well, listen, this wasn't on my list of questions, but we were talking about it before we hit record. I'm fascinated by the way you guys do uh, your uh, leadership structure in regards to elders. Yeah. You have a difference between shepherding elders and directional leaders. Would you give our listeners a little bit of insight into that? I think for some of our church leaders, this could be really helpful as they structure things. Yep. So we have a group of directional elders and then shepherding elders. So Directional elders, there's seven of us, and basically the responsibility of the directional elders is to set the high-level overarching direction of the church, guard the doctrine of the church, um, execute, uh, you know, fiduciary responsibility over the organization, but but that's, a, that's smaller than the biggest bullet point would be shepherd the future spiritually of the church, you know, be looking further out, steward... Um, the future of the church, uh, shepherd God's people uh, from a big high level picture. This is where we're headed perspective. Mm-hmm. Then we have shepherding elders, which it's about 150 of them who they, we have elder prayer after every service. They, where we anoint the sick with oil and pray over them. And they, they, they're the ones who do that. They visit people in the hospital. They perform uh, memorials slash funerals and weddings and, um, they lead rooted, which is our discipleship program. They lead rooted once a year, which helps them stay connected to the new people that God's bringing into our church. So, uh, every directional elder is also a shepherding elder, but not every shepherding elder is a is a directional elder. We rotate the um, directional elders; they they serve a four year term, and then the the shepherding elders can continue. We do ask them to recommit. Um, we, or we, for the first time we did, we asked them to, to recommit this year as we started the new, um, the new ministry year. Mm-hmm. That's how it's, that's how it's split up. I love that. It's such a unique, um, idea, but yet so practical and allows people to find places to serve and grow in their leadership and transition in and out of some of those, uh, those directional roles. All right, buddy. Well, I really appreciate your time, but before I let you go, I want to ask you, just give us a few books that you're reading right now, or you have read maybe during the the pandemic that you think, man, these are must reads for any kind of leader yeah. in any facet. It could be church, it could be business, whatever. Uh, the most helpful book I read during the pandemic was, it's called A Beautiful Constraint. And so it's, it's basically, the pandemic provided some constraints on every organization. And how do you respond to those constraints? You can either be a victim, a neutralizer, or a transformer. Hmm. And the authors basically say, hey, we used to think that you're predisposed to one of those three, but actually they view that as stages you go through, that you initially view yourself as, man, this happened to us. Then you go to, we're going to work around it. Then the final place is how can how can we actually take these constraints that have been given to us and and they can become transformational. They actually can cause us to do some things we weren't going to do before that make us more effective. So that was that was probably the the, the read that our staff heard me refer to the most um, during the pandemic. Um, I'm trying to think about another one where I see um, I'm looking around my my book. I'm, I'm, you know, like you, I'm preparing sermons. So I've been, I'm about to do a sermon series on anxiety. So I've been reading a lot of Edward Welch, like he's a Christian psychologist and counselor. Um, 
but I, I, I wouldn't recommend it from a leader. I mean, it's great stuff, but I'm not, it's not like a, you know, this is a great leader book from the pandemic kind of book, right? Yeah, no problem. Listen, you gave us a great one. We'll take it from there. And of course, the John Stott works as well are always worth reading and rereading. Eric, we're cheering for you, buddy. We love Mariners, love your work. Glad you guys are partnered together and uh, real excited about the future of what you guys are doing. And uh, as a fellow uh, pastor in California, who's a transplant out here like yourself, Man, go west, young man. We need more of you. We need more people coming this way. That's right. Because as California goes, so goes America, so goes the world. So let's change California together. Amen. Man, thank you. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you, brother. Well, I love that conversation. Hope you did as well. So many great nuggets to pull out of there. And that book that uh, Eric mentioned, uh, Beautiful Constraint, is a fantastic read. I highly recommend that. So make sure you pick that up. Uh, really want to promote our next week. It's going to be a really fun conversation with a friend of mine, a pastor by the name of Nate Ross, who did something that a lot of people have done before in all walks of life, and that is follow their dad in the family business. He happened to take over his dad's church. Maybe you've taken over a dad's business or mom's business. How do you follow in their shoes? We're going to talk about that next week. As always, make sure you rate and review the podcast. That would mean the world to me. I really appreciate your support. And go to Compassion.com slash Rusty to sponsor a child. Next week, Nate Ross. Until then, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.